Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. I think yesterday I just uh, recorded some of it where uh, I really got into some more information about 360 video and some of the interesting stuff that I'm going to be doing with the GoPro Fusion 360. It's going to be really interesting. I think that's coming in today. I'm going to try and go out and build a, a quick portfolio of 360 video images and see if I can uh, put something together over the next week to kind of try and show off some of the interesting things that 360 video could be uh, used for. So that's one thing that I'm going to be working on. Part of the other projects I'm working on are uh, considering selling off some of my used Sony equipment. Should I go with KEH or Adorama, one of those other used sellers? Should I go with something like eBay to sell it off? Should I go to Craigslist to sell it off? The Facebook marketplace? I haven't really used some of those, so. You can see more of my work at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. You can check out some of my photo books on Amazon. I think you can look up uh, Billy Newman under the authors section there and see uh, some of the photo books on film, on the desert, on surrealism, on camping. Some cool stuff over there. This last week, I made a trip out to Central Oregon, and it was still really nice. You know, we had a little bit of rain, I think, out there last Thursday, Friday, and then Saturday, Sunday, we, it just, it just brightened up a ton. It was super crisp out, super bright, really cold though. Uh, I think my friend Dave had just gone out, uh, to Eastern Oregon, I think out towards Smith Rock and he said it was super cold out there too. But yeah, this trip, uh, we did like an overnight trip out there. And I think today I just posted a photograph of, uh, of something I thought was really cool. It's one of the archeological remains that are out in Eastern Oregon. And, and there's a whole interesting history about stuff in Eastern Oregon. Um, but the photo that I posted to Instagram and to, you know, to Facebook and all the other places today is, is a photograph of this rock teepee ring that's still in very good condition. It's out in Eastern Oregon in this area uh, in between uh, sort of near like where a dry lake bed or once just a lake would have been. Now what we see in our modern time is just a dry lake bed. But the cool thing is, is as we kind of look around, you can see the remnants of an old Indian camp that was really quite established in that area. I think it's it's just amazing to get to go see. And you'll find other artifacts uh, from Indian populations out in Eastern Oregon once you start looking around. Like you'll start noticing um, obsidian chips that are on the ground, or you'll start noticing um, really in like some places, you, through a lot of Oregon, through a lot of the the less developed, uh, less forested areas of Eastern Oregon, there's a, there's a lot less erosion that's taken place natural erosion that's taken place over the last few hundred years like over here on the west side of the coast with all the the deciduous plant um, matter that comes up there's a lot of turnover that seems to happen like um, a lot of the vegetation is going to end up hiding or overgrowing some of the older um, encampments or establishments that were made i mean right now i'm in the camas valley i'm in the willamette valley where the uh Kalapuya Indians, where I'm sure out here in front of me in this big field out toward the Willamette River, there's tons of Indian artifacts, tons of old Indian camps, but none of that's really visible because of all the deciduous organic material that's been developed over here over the many hundreds of years since it's been that there was an Indian population in the area. Now, what's interesting about Eastern Oregon is that because it's way more remote, there's very few people out there. There's very few people to disturb a lot of things. And really, sagebrush doesn't grow very fast. Uh, things don't really move around very fast out there. I was there, I think maybe more than a decade ago, and it was really almost the same as it is now. Very little has changed out there. Very, you know, there's no new houses, no new development, maybe a, maybe a fence around the thing. That might be it. Um, but it was really cool. So you get out to this area 
you hike out to a spot and you can really see all over the ground is just a ton of black obsidian chunks, these unworked pieces of black obsidian that were carried in by people and then dropped there at some point. And all these pieces were used, I think, in the in the in the camp to to chip out arrowheads and to chip out other tools that they would use. But it's really cool. This TP ring is really the the only um, well, there's a few teepee rings, like uh, a few smattering of like of, of piles of rocks. This teepee ring was really the one that was uh, that was the most established still. It was the most upright still. And you wonder like how far back did these go? Like how far back did these uh, these stones that were laid into the ground go? But they would use it sort of like as a foundation for for the tent or the hut of the teepee that they they would have established there. And then they would you know work out of it. And they worked out of it on a bluff, and then they would look out over the the hill to the lake area and yeah i don't know they just had a whole system out there but it's really amazing when you really start to uh to come in and, and sort of understand the layout of the land and, and where people would sort of go and it's very interesting man surreal really to get out and like be in a spot like that or sit in a spot sit in the center of the teepee ring where you know there's people other men thousands of years ago that were doing work and trying to survive out in really what is now a very harsh environment. And back then was still probably quite harsh, <laughs> uh, at least in the hundreds of years ago. But man, if you start going back thousands of years, even a few hundred years ago, I guess 500 years ago, a lot of those dry lake areas out in Eastern Oregon really still had at least a marsh or at least a wetland or, uh, or something like that. I mean, like similar to Summer Lake now, you know, parts of the year it's dry, parts of the year it's, it's filled with water. Um, so it, it might be quite a bit more like that now, but I think in the past it was really, uh, it, was, it was just accepted that there was going to be some amount of water in, in the lake bed all year round instead of it being, you know, a dry lake bed. And I think it's, I think it's supported by the watershed of a few creeks that are in the area. And, and out in that area of Eastern Oregon, there's really, I don't think there's really that many, that many drainages that really go all the way out toward the coast. Um, so I think there's a few parts that are like landlocked watersheds where the water flows into an area and then, and then kind of pools up and makes a large lake there. And, um, well, I know like there's the Klamath Lake and then that runs out to the Klamath River. So that, that ends up getting out to the, to the ocean. But I don't know if like places like Goose Lake or, uh, or just like these inland lake areas, I think they're just fed by the body of water. And I don't really know if a lot of that would actually get back out into the water cycle to, to head back out toward the ocean and then, you know, come back up or something. So it's kind of interesting thinking about, uh, just some of the, the old watershed stuff that used to be out there, how populations used to try and try and work around all that. You know, like you go out to a place like Fort Rocky and you read some of the signs and you look at uh, how back in the Pleistocene area, they, that whole region out there was part of, a, I think, what's called a Pluvian Lake. Uh, it's like a prehistoric Pleistocene era lake um, that really took up a huge amount of land out in central Oregon. Really what we think of now is just a large desert area covered with sagebrush with really very few land features was actually just all underwater. The, the land feature of Fort Rock that we visualize now, I think came about uh, geologically during the Pleistocene era, era before, before the, uh, before the ice age and, and probably a, a while back before that. But during that time, it was underwater. It was under a lake bed. And so that's where you get that formation is it was underwater. And then it kind of eroded around it, this aquifer and lava or a aquifer, a magma, I don't know, it met at a certain time and made this big ring, this big uh, 
this big Fort Rock style formation. And that's still what's out there now. But it's really amazing when you get out there and you go see it. And then you kind of start to reckon with the perspective that this all was once underwater. This was like an inland sea. And then after the Ice Age or before the Ice Age, there's some evidence of kind of, well, I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> but uh, there's evidence to show that uh, the Clovis people, the Clovis tribes, which I think were, were the ones that, at least in modern archaeology, have been identified as the group that was first to come over the land bridge, first to come into the northwest and populate uh, parts of the west coast and into the south and onward and such. But I guess these Clovis people had a, had like a specific type of, of way of, of building their tools their stone tools that they would use. And that's a, a bit of a way that you can track some things. Is if you do find an archaeological artifact, you can kind of identify by the technique used to build the stone tool. Like there's, uh, there's different measures. I think one of the oldest ones that's looked for is fluting. Um, and that was a, a technique used by the Clovis people where they would they would sort of make an, an arrowhead or a spear point, really spear points. I don't know if they had they had flying bows and arrows at that time that far back, but they'd, they'd build these spear points and they would flute the end, the bottom of it. So like if you were to imagine, um, it would be kind of this concaved uh, slope that was, that was sort of dremeled out of the bottom base of the rock so that you could you could kind of fit that down in the center of a, of a stick really and then and then wind that up so you kind of make both ends uh, kind of taper off to a point and then you would jam one end into the stick and then wrap it and then I don't know you know put sap on it or, or, or you know whatever you could do to, to, to fasten it down um, but I guess that was one of the techniques that was used early on and that's one of the the things that they look for when they're trying to find really old populations in Oregon Sometimes it's fluting. That doesn't always mean that it's really old, though, I suppose. But I guess there was like handfuls of uh, of different technical or technological generations of, of stone tool building out there. And you can kind of tell a little bit. But it's very fascinating stuff. And man, was it not amazing to get out there and to really recognize that, you know, I was around uh, a natural human man-made, well, a semi-natural but man-made artifact of uh, of a home or of an establishment that's as old i don't know how old it is maybe it's as old as early rome late rome who would know how old it is in comparison to europe i'm not really sure maybe it goes back even further than that it seems like there was population uh in that area of oregon for thousands of years i think was it the paiute that was out there could be different but i know the paiute the paiute were south of that area the Paiute were in Lake County, I think, like through Hart Mountain, Alvord, Nevada, the Malheur area. All of that was Paiute. So maybe this was still in the Paiute section. But I know that that really, you know, like what we've noticed in the last few hundred years, if you were to uh, to look at the changes of a map, even within the United States over the last, say, take 600 years, not even 7,000 years. Take the last 600 years of the United States of America and then look at all the different maps that would be the territorial ranges of those people who ended up being in power during that time it's really interesting to see and to kind of take note to how something that seems permanent or seems to have the nature of permanence in it when you speak about it like the that was the range of the Paiute Indian well was it for 600 years or for that long did it move around did they have I don't know territorial engagements was there really that many of them were they there all the time I don't know any of that information so it's kind of interesting when you sort of think about it, but it could have been any number of large groups of people that probably would have no idea they were called the Paiute Indian. 
Um, but all really very interesting stuff. And man, was it so cool to get out there and, uh, and see, uh, see a real, uh, a TP ring. It's really fun. It's one of the, the cooler pieces of, uh, archeological artifacts that I've run into. I mean, you know, you see, uh, petroglyphs, you see a lot of things, but really, you know, you were sitting in the home of someone that lived thousands of years ago that lived out in the same place that, that I do now, you know, really fascinating stuff, but I had a blast going out there and, uh, and getting to check it out. Uh, and it was really I don't know. I just I love I kind of love the stuff with the with the story with the background to it, or where you kind of get to attach some thing that you recognize with it with uh, with what you get to talk about or what you get to show with it. Uh, so I thought it was a really cool story. It was it was really fun to get out there and go see it. I remembered it from years ago. I think I'd seen it about ten or eleven, twelve years ago, and uh, I think I had tried to go back to it, but I didn't really see how to or where it was, and I wasn't really sure. It's not something on the map. You can check out more information at billynewmanphoto.com. You can go to billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support if you want to help me out and participate in the value for value model that uh, we're running this podcast with. If uh, you receive some value out of some of the stuff that I was talking about, you're welcome to uh, help me out and send some value my way through the portal at billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support. You can also find more information there about uh, Patreon and the way that I use it if you're interested or, or feel more comfortable using Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Billy Newman photo. But uh, the holidays was kind of an interesting time because I ended up sort of thinking a lot about what, but, well, what photographs are, you know, uh, I'm, I'm getting a little bit older now. And uh, I think there's, there's sort of like a change in the vision that I have of the way that I kind of think about photographs or, or, you know, what, what is their purpose? Why are we making them? And in a big way, like um, uh, maybe propagated uh, by the, the Instagram culture or the, the sharing content creation culture that sort of seems to be out right now, especially for those, uh, the, you know, photographers or artists, I think they feel the pressure to be content producers now. And that maybe is a little bit of a different job than the photographer or the real artist, that kind of a, that kind of a person. And so I've been trying to sort of think about that a little bit and, uh, and sort of take a look at, at the trends of Instagram and are those my art? Is that what I need to pursue? And a lot of the time I, I sort of notice this and even in my own images, this like super sharp, super crisp, everything has to be really perfect or really edited or, or really meaningful and dramatic in these images. And what I'm noticing a little bit, uh, especially as I review my older images, is that the, the photographs that I'm really drawn to, they're the photographs that represent the truth more. They're the photographs that kind of have... Um, I don't know what it is really, but they have uh, a little bit more of an essence of r reality. Or maybe it's uh, it's reality, but it's also a little bit of grit to it too. Like this really happened. It was it was magical. It was interesting. I really like that surrealism in the photographs that I take. And I have for a long time, but, but there's a little bit more. And I've always, I think in a lot of stuff I've done, kind of pushed for the unreal. And uh, some of the stuff that I'm kind of noticing the last couple of years, as I looked at like the photographs and how they changed, is sort of how that shifted from the unreal of landscapes or of the world, you know, kind of trying to select things about landscapes, you know, when they have unusual colors to them or, or unusual dynamics or phenomena like, like clouds or weather or, or water or something like that that makes it uh, sort of feel like a different look or a different image um, than like what we'd see midday at noon if we looked at the same thing. Um, so I think that's definitely still part of photography. But one thing I was noticing through the holidays and, and through reviewing a bunch of my old photographs was how much the 
the stock value of, of a photograph goes up over time. Over one year, it's a bit. Over a few years, it's a bit more. But over a decade, you really get you really get to see the change that happens in time. You know, I get to see uh, like relatives that were much younger in these photographs they took 15 years ago than they are now. And it seems like a, kind of a, an obvious point or, or it seems like something everyone should know. But really, there's a huge amount of value in the photographs because they capture something at the time that it was. And you, you get to hold on to that after the after their people or the moment or the event or the experience changes. I'm starting to know this as I'm getting older is that life does sort of change. It changes. And it's an obvious uh, kind of point of fact that everybody's sort of known about for a long time. But in my naive sense, I've been so focused on photography or on image creation or on the product, making something that's kind of crisp and sharp and uh, perfectly usable today. I, I don't know if I was thinking so clearly about how the nostalgia factor or how the the value of something, you know, from a family or, or just sort of a small moment that's captured that's, that's more real, uh, how that escalates in value over time and uh, like coming at these photos 15 years later or even like seven years later from some of the stuff that I had it's really interesting to see like wow like I took a ton of photos of this type of topic but I didn't I didn't take as many photographs that sort of represented my artistic experience of my life or that humanity I really want to try and show more of that in the photographs the the humanity that kind of the, the way you feel about a photograph and I think that's so much about what a photographer is there to do is sort of uh, be be able to kind of pick and select which moments to capture and, and, and which ways you're going to be able to share that stuff in the future that's going to become more nostalgic, more meaningful, uh, or just, just a way of kind of knowing, oh, this was part of my life. Wow, that's really cool. Um, so I've been trying to think about some of those ideas around photography for the new year a little bit. But along with that, I've been going through the last like 15 years of photos in, the, in my big uh, super catalog that that collection of um, of Lightroom photos I made that's that's kind of trying to pull in every phone photo, every phone video, every every different camera I've had since 2002. I'm trying to get all those photos together, put them in there. I think it was like 120,000 images, something like that, which really isn't that many photos for for someone that's been doing stuff for a long time. Um, but I went through those and I, and I tried to like punch those down to a lot of the selects, so a lot of the images that I, I kind of want to keep from. And I was trying to pull out a lot of uh, good photos, but, but photos that were kind of irrelevant to me for, for this sort of future moving forward catalog of stuff. I want to get rid of like product photos or work photos that are hundreds and thousands of photos even to kind of fill up space and memory in the catalog. I'll keep those definitely, but those will be backed up on another hard drive. But what's active to me, what's in my library currently, I want to be like the last, I think I've talked about this before, but like the last two years or so of photos in, in whole, in total, so I can get back to that library and edit any one of those raw files I have. But for stuff that's older than two years, like 2015 and before, I kind of want to pare those down a little bit so that I'm a little bit more specific uh, and and able to, to just get to those photos that were selects uh, a little bit faster. And then especially for older stuff, like pre, pre 2010 or so, I want to, I want to really have those paired down to like the, the hundred photos I actually, you know, I need to have around to, to get to for, for whatever kind of stuff I need to do. But uh, it was really cool though, going through the old photos and you just kind of do it in this pretty quick way of, you know, like this is a one star, this is a two star kind of a thing. So you kind of punch through those pretty fast. And then, uh, and then I have another round to do, or I'm going to, I'm going to try and punch it, you know, from one star to two star, those are going to be what I keep for a while. And then from that, I'm going to try and render that down, 
uh, to select all the all the three star photos. All the that's kind of like uh, I would pick this photo and sort of put it under review, and then and then my system at least is a little bit of the four star, five star zone. That's for. Uh, this is going to be published or this is going into the portfolio or as content sort of thing. Um, So yeah, I'm going to try and uh, push on that stuff a bit more and get some photographs sorted for the year. But it was really cool going through all of those old trips that we've done, um, all those different places that we've gone to. And uh, of course, I've seen... Well, one thing I've noticed is, good Lord, how bad at Photoshop I was. And I want to... I want to say that I'm going to put a little blame because I remember this happened at the time, but I want to put a little blame on how god awful my laptop monitor was. Um, like a 2006, 2007, 2008 laptop monitor just had no color gamut against what we know now in uh, in like modern OL or LED Retina display monitors like Apple puts out, uh, or like any kind of uh, modern LED more color accurate monitor that we have now. But I was looking at it and there's like the, the it's just so muddy. There's there's so few colors that it can really represent. So you have to push things a little further out of gamut, or at least I did at the time, kind of uh, not understanding what I was compensating to. So I look back at some of these photos and go, oh, I would never make it this yellow and green in a modern world. So it was kind of interesting what, you know, whatever was going on or whatever I was thinking about at the time visually that, that sort of drew me to that place. But it's interesting to see like how that changes, how your aesthetics sort of change and, and also a little bit of how your tools and calibration systems change and, and sort of seeing like, wow, how off was that way back? Um, so all stuff that you kind of learn and, and you get better at. And it's interesting, at least to the benefit, you get better over time. And uh, like a decade later, I see changes in the uh, the kind of creative or the the style that I would lay out just if I started working, you know, out without actually having to try and uh, implement a style, you know, try and lay when, oh, I'm going to make a photograph that's black and white and of events and personal or something, uh, instead of trying to go out with, the, with you know, a set intention of that, which you should or, or could in any set of photos. But if I just go out and am shooting what I am drawn to, the photographs that I capture and get, and the way that I kind of perceive what they look like and how I, sh- I want to show them to people, that's all kind of changed and evolved over time. And uh, it seems like my choices in that are better than they once were. Um, but it was interesting too, just kind of seeing like, man, how many years and years and years did it take me taking photographs before any of these photographs really got good or, or got to the point where they were more than snapshots or more than just kind of a data collection. And I sort of thought of myself as an archivist for a long time where, um, where like the job wasn't really to be a photographer, where it was editing to select like a moment and character and, and sort of like nuance between uh, things that had like emotional pull to them. I didn't really understand that type of composition stuff. I just sort of understood the camera mechanically functioning as a light capturing tool. And so that was like, that was probably like the first four years of photography was, you know, sort of thinking about it like that, like uh, I'm capturing data of a reality and then that's going to be processed in uh, to something else later. And it wasn't really for years until I understood like emotional vision or, you know, like uh, having uh, some way to kind of tie the way you feel to the way that you see something. And uh, that was really interesting, kind of learning about how, how some of those things work. And oh, it's still such a long road and I still have, you know, no no real understand or no real experience in that by uh, by anybody that's really trained. Just self-taught little old Billy out here in nowhere Willamette Valley. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, some of the stuff about uh, making selects. Thanks a lot for checking out this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. I hope you guys check out some stuff on BillyNewmanPhoto.com. 
few new things up there, some stuff on the homepage, some good links to other other outbound sources, some, some links to books, some links to some podcasts, links to some blog posts, all pretty cool. But yeah, check it out at billynewmanaphoto.com. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the podcast. Talk to you next time.